Hello and welcome to Conversations, a podcast hosted here at NYU Sydney's campus where we discuss news, trends, and popular culture. I'm your host, Duncan Lemieux, a student in NYU's School of Professional Studies spending the spring semester here in Sydney. And our guest today is Adam Gall. Welcome, Adam. Glad to be here, Duncan. Well, thank you for being here. So can you start by telling us what is your position here at NYU Sydney? What do you do? So I teach environmental history. Even though that is not entirely related to Mardi Gras, I hear that you have some expertise in that area, that you know a little bit yeah. about Mardi Gras. So my background is in cultural studies, but when I did my PhD, I did it in a department of gender studies mm-hmm. as the, the place where my um, my supervisor, who was a feminist literary critic, she was based there. So I followed her to the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney, did my PhD there. And, you know, usually when you're doing a PhD, you teach in the department that you're, you're kind of hosted in. And so I taught gender studies for close to a decade, you know, as a, as a tutor in sort of introductory thinking gender, feminist theory classes, um, those sorts of spaces. Okay. So my, my experience there was an interesting experience because I, my research was, was kind of in one area, but then when I'd go into the classroom, I was talking to students about um, you know, critical ideas about sexuality, about gender, critiques of, of traditional philosophy. Got a little bit of history along the way. <laughs> I think I've probably picked up more history since. And I also feel like I got an education because a lot of the students who are drawn to gender studies classrooms are students who are involved in activism and, you know, are at the cutting edge of, of certain issues around gender. Yep. So there you go. Okay. Well, good. Thank you for explaining that. We're very glad to have you here. So as we know, Sydney's Mardi Gras celebration was last weekend. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you partook in the festivities. As I do every year now, I went to Fair Day, mm-hmm. which is a, a few weeks earlier. Um, and it's kind of a big picnic, but also a day where you know services can advertise themselves, businesses can advertise themselves. There's a, a kind of a rainbow families focus. Okay. So people bring their children down to Victoria Park, down in the southern part of Sydney. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yes, <laughs> it's always fun. Fair Day is always fun. So as we know, Mardi Gras is a celebration that occurs all over the world. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the evolution of Sydney's own Mardi Gras festival? So the the Mardi Gras started as a a protest, a response actually to some United States-based gay rights groups were asking for some solidarity from people in Sydney in their struggle against... um, there was a, a bit of a period of reaction in the mid to late 70s. You know, there were kind of neoconservative movements pushing back against some of the legal changes that had taken place in California and other US states. And people in Sydney were kind of connected to those networks. You know, many, many people had traveled to San Francisco. And so they were asked to be involved in, in um, kind of international protest. And that was kind of the immediate trigger. But there was also this situation where in Sydney at least, a kind of notoriously corrupt police force, um, organised crime, kind of controlled and, and also persecuted gay venues and, and um, people who were going out to, to bars had to go to these particular places. And, you know, there's a long tradition of, of drag performance in Sydney, but it was very much controlled and regulated. And then there were a lot of people who really just wanted to go out and have fun. You know, they, they were looking for intimacy, they were looking for pleasure. They didn't want to have to go to the places that the police said they could go. They, they also didn't want to risk entrapment by homophobic police officers. They didn't want to be persecuted in all sorts of different ways. So there's, there's this situation where international activism is, is there in the background. People are drawing on that. 
there's these immediate causes in Sydney. And so Mardi Gras starts as a kind of street protest. And then from the street protest, uh, there was supposed to be a kind of parade or celebration afterwards, which then became an extension of the protest. A lot of women participated on the day uh, in, in June 1978, but also a lot of people who were seemingly apolitical or not interested in protesting actually came out of the bars in, in places around Oxford Street and joined the march. The reason why it was called Mardi Gras was, was to give it a kind of festive quality, drawing on um, New Orleans, the idea of New Orleans. I mean, in terms of evolution, it's, it's kind of an establishment event now. Like, it's, it's a hugely popular event. It has corporate sponsors. It's controversial, but the New South Wales Police Force do have people, representatives marching now mm -hmm. in the parade. Um, even though they, on the day, were responsible for um, for violence and for arrests. Yeah. Um, so it, it has changed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in a very positive way. So what can you tell us about the yes vote and some of the developments since then, especially in Sydney? I mean, my sense of that history is that the postal survey was seen as an imposition on LGBTIQ plus people that they had to campaign in favour of their own um, legitimacy as people. And so my sense is that everyone's moved back to community-led issues. You know, there are, there are real problems around drug enforcement at the moment. The way in which drug-taking behaviour is being criminalised is seen to disproportionately target gay men in particular, um, but also other queer subcultures in Sydney. Also, there's a renewed focus on schools and on young people as, as victims of homophobic bullying. Were there active campaigns to encourage people to vote now? Yes, there were. There were active campaigns. There was a no campaign. There were organisations in, in favour of Australian marriage or traditional marriage that emerged to kind of draw together mm. um, resources. The campaigns tended to depend on either a kind of defensive stance, like saying things like it's okay to vote no, mm -hmm. implying that everyone was being pressured to be politically correct and that actually people felt very differently about the issue than what they were willing to say in really? public. And then also a slippery slope argument suggesting that if same-sex marriage was recognised, it would lead to furthering of some nebulous agenda. So there's a kind of paranoid narrative that mm -hmm. once that happened, then all sorts of radical ideas would be taught in schools and, and so on. Really? Uh, yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was really about the issue itself. Okay. There were very few clear, coherent cases made against same-sex marriage. It was much more about that slippery slope or, I guess, a defensive homophobia, really, okay. like suggesting that there ought to be space for everybody to remain homophobic if they wanted to. On the world stage, Australia was relatively late in bringing this discussion to the table. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that was? I think there are three reasons why um, it took a long time. One is that over many years, the, the status of de facto couples had been increasingly recognised by the Australian government and by the Australian state, so that for example, in the United States, there are lots of very particular rights that are attached to marriage. In Australia, there were only a few things that were different between how you would be legally treated as a de facto couple, as a, as a kind of common law partnership, as opposed to a marriage. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of background. Both sides of politics have been also been compromised by strong conservative traditions that are outside of 
probably that are different to the views of their constituents okay. um, a lot of the time. So even in the Labour Party, which is sort of seen as a socially progressive party, it's a social democratic party historically, some of the most powerful and influential unions supporting the Labour Party, so Labour unions, have conservative leadership. They have people who are religious conservatives and so were attempting to, to block um, during the period of the Labour government, 2007 to 2013, block changes. So you end up with this very strange situation where Prime Minister Julia Gillard at that time makes a radical argument against marriage. She says, you know, I don't really believe in marriage. I, I think it's, a, it's an imposition on women. You know, this is not something that we should be making a priority. We should make other forms of recognition a priority. But the effect of that is to, to support a conservative position. Mm -hmm. So you have this, this weird thing going on in the Labour Party. And then you also have from 2000, sorry, from 1996 to 2007, you have one of the, the longest lived conservative governments in Australian history, the Howard Coalition government. Howard went, John Howard went as far as to, during that time, change the Marriage Act to specify that it, it was not talking about same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So the leadership of that government was particularly conservative and the Liberal and National parties under that government were increasingly conservative. So those are the, the three things you've got. On the one hand, this de facto status is, is given a lot of credibility in Australia. Then you've got the, the history of the political parties where there's more conservative say than actually the constituents want. And then you've got that particular period of conservative government, um, which is very successful at stopping this becoming an issue. Okay. Is there still pushback today? Is there still conservatism when it comes to same-sex marriage? I, I mean, there, there are still websites live against same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the coalition that was kind of assembled around the issue, around the no vote, is still active. But the focus now, as then actually, is really on what's going on in schools and what's going on with young people. So there's this sense that, you know, they talk about radical gender theory being, being taught in schools. You know, what, what that actually comes from is there's this, you know, really careful, really tentative campaign against bullying that was being rolled out in schools around the country. Mm -hmm. And because one of the things that it dealt with was homophobic bullying, conservatives latched onto that and they, they continue to talk about it as pushing some kind of agenda as requiring children to, to somehow become gay <laughs> or at least be exposed to things they ought not to be exposed to as children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's some of the same problems that, that happen around any sort of sex education, actually. You know, there are people who, who feel like it's not something that should be um, raised in school at all, mm -hmm. um, but then it has this homophobic edge and it, it's a kind of more intense version of that. What do you think was the role of local activists and organizations in kind of mobilizing the community and encouraging voters? On, on the yes side, um, I think there were some really important figures that sit between community activism and media and pol politics, like establishment politics. Mm -hmm. So people like Sally Rugg, who was kind of the face of the yes campaign mm -hmm. as, as a kind of a, a very professional spokesperson and then Alex Greenwich, who is a, a politician. So they're kind of sitting in that in-between space. At the big, at the, I guess the top of, the, of town, sorry, the big end of town, um, there's corporate support. There's a lot of companies that came forward and gave um, explicit support for same-sex marriage, but they didn't 
divert a lot of resources to the campaign. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually a series of decisions and a whole lot of activities that local activists and organisations undertook that I think made a big difference. You know, a lot of people have talked about the, the quality of digital campaigning and social media campaigning, but I think much more effective have been people actually making phone calls um, to talk to strangers about the issue in advance of the vote, people going out and knocking on doors even, um, you know, young activists going out and knocking on doors in places that they, um, you know, they didn't know anybody, went, went to suburbs where they didn't know anybody and, and made the case, um, and also the kind of informal conversations that, that people had with family members and with friends, I think were really important. And each of those things has come out of local decision-making, um, really, because a, a lot of activist groups, a lot of community organisations didn't feel like they should have to go through this process at all. There was no legal reason why there had to be a plebiscite or a survey mm -hmm. on the issue. There were plenty of very reliable opinion polls that had been generated over the years, suggesting huge support same-sex marriage in the community but you had this situation where the then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was kind of beholden to a, a small number of, of conservative MPs in his own in his Liberal Party who wanted to have their say they wanted to have their time to have their say a lot of activists a lot of people in in LGBTIQ plus communities felt that the whole thing really should be boycotted and condemned as an exercise the, the plebiscite should not have ha happened at all but then they've made that very pragmatic decision to still get out there and campaign for it. So now as kind of a closing note, do you think there is progress to be made? And if so, what are the next steps? How can we continue to promote marriage equality, LGBTQI plus rights and things like that? I really, I really think that it's around young people, gender diverse young people in particular, that, that some of these issues, you know, we, we still have um, the situation where young people are subjected to all sorts of attacks, all sorts of scrutiny about the choices they're making or scrutiny about how they feel in themselves that are kind of unwarranted. And you've got, you've got powerful voices suggesting that the way in which these things are handled within schools as institutions in particular shouldn't be altered. You know, sh there shouldn't be a concerted effort to um, make those spaces safer for um, yeah, particularly for gender diverse kids, but also around sexuality. And it's not even necessarily um, about LGBTIQ plus youth. You know, it's, it's also just about the way in which that is, is a period in people's lives where they're working out where they fit, you know. And I think that the more attention that's paid to um, making that uh, a safer uh, time <laughs> in people's lives, making yeah. that a time when people feel supported, the better. Okay. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure getting to speak to you about this and get your insight on all these matters. Great to be here. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like the podcast or want to learn more about what we do here at NYU Sydney, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook, where we post about programs, events, and student life. Until next time, this has been Conversations with Duncan Lemieux and Adam Gall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>